Welcome to the fourth season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get to this week's episode. Philip ran full speed down the soccer field. His team were looking for the lead. As he neared the goal, out of the corner of his eye, he saw an opposing player gunning for him. With a burst of energy, he fired the ball between the pipes and scored. Later that season, Philip Chisholm was a major player in his team winning the league championship. But Philip's life hadn't always resulted in a win. His father cheated on his mother, and they separated when he was only two years old. His mother moved the family from Tennessee to Florida. There, they lived with his grandfather for a while, before moving back to Tennessee. But their home was small, and he and his two younger sisters, along with his mother, all shared one room. After middle school, Philip and his family moved to Danvers in Massachusetts, a small town of 26,000, a half-hour drive from Boston. In 2013, 14-year-old Philip settled into Danvers High School and began to make friends. He was quiet and shy to start and selected a few friends for his inner circle. Philip wasn't into drugs or alcohol and joined the soccer team. His teammates liked the athletic team. Colleen Ritzer was a 24-year-old college student who began her career teaching math at Danvers High School. Smart and energetic, she was working towards a master's degree. Slender, with long chestnut brown hair, she was a natural beauty. Colleen was happy, always smiling, and adored her sister, brother, and parents. Philip was struggling, but no one knew. He kept things close to his chest. Just weeks into the school year, on October 22nd, NBC News reported that he packed a ski mask, gloves, box cutter, and a change of clothes into his backpack and headed to school. After the last bell rang out, he and a few students headed to Colleen's classroom on the second floor, where she was providing extra help to math students. At some point, Colleen mentioned Tennessee, and Philip reacted by getting visibly upset. It's not clear exactly what Colleen had said about his home state. Colleen noticed and quickly changed the subject. A few minutes later, at 2.54 p.m., Colleen left her classroom to walk to the washroom. Dressed in black pants and a long sleeve purple t-shirt, she strode down the hall. The faculty restroom was occupied, so she continued to the woman's washroom. Philip, wearing blue jeans, a white shirt, and blue sweatshirt, reached into his backpack and grabbed gloves, a ski mask, 
and box cutter, slipped out of his seat and entered the hall. He took two steps, looked to his left, then to his right, retreated back into the classroom, and seconds later stepped back out, pulling the hood up over his head, and he followed Colleen. In the washroom and past the stainless steel water fountain hanging on the wall, in a flash, he attacked her. A burst of anger pumped through his veins as he came up behind her and with one quick motion pulled the blade across her throat. As blood rushed out and poured onto the floor, he knew he'd hit a major artery, but he wasn't done. He stabbed her, Sixteen times in the neck. Minutes later, a female student entered the washroom and immediately noticed clothes piled on the floor and the bare backside of someone. Thinking they might be getting changed, she turned around and quickly left. Philip pulled the ski mask over his head, exited the washroom, and went outside. His mind raced what to do next. He strode back into the school, then back outside. He changed his clothes and wheeled a recycling bin into the school, down the hall, and into the washroom. He loaded Colleen's lifeless body into the bin, wheeled it to the elevator, down to the first floor, and out the doors towards the student parking lot. Near the edge, he dragged it into the woods, lifted the lid, and dumped her body on the cold, dark forest floor. Then he moved her sixty feet, laid her on her back, removed some of her clothes, and assaulted her. Then he pulled out a handwritten note and placed it near her. The letters spelled out, I hate you all. He covered her with leaves and debris, then dropped his blood-soaked gloves and broke into a run. As he neared Endicott Street, he slowed to a walk. Near the movie theater, he pulled out his cell phone and Colleen's, and knowing he could be tracked with GPS, threw them to the ground and smashed them. He stopped at a fast food restaurant. Afterwards, he used Colleen's credit card and bought a ticket and went to the movie theater. When Philip didn't come home, his mother went to the school and searched for him. And when she failed to find him, she called police and reported him missing. It was 6.34 p.m. By 9 p.m., the school's principal sent out an email to the school staff reporting Philip missing, while police posted his picture on social media. Word spread fast, and Philip's soccer teammates helped search for him. Meanwhile, Colleen's parents, Tom and Peggy, were concerned when their daughter didn't come home. It was unusual for her to not let them know if her plans changed. They reached out to a fellow teacher, and when they received the email about Philip, called the principal to say Colleen was missing too. 
and that Philip had been in her last class. By 10.30 p.m., Stephen Baldessera, a Danvers police officer assigned to the high school as a student resource officer, heard about Philip and went to the high school to review the video surveillance. After he arrived, he learned from the principal that Colleen was missing as well. While waiting for his computer to boot up, he strode outside to speak with officers who were searching the school grounds and discovered that they'd found Colleen's bag. And in a wooded area, they found a recycling bin, discarded clothing, and white gloves covered in blood. Peering inside the bin, officers could see what appeared to be blood. It was now 11 p.m. Officer Baldazero returned to his office and began watching the surveillance video. The principal and her colleagues arrived at the school just as Tom and Peggy were searching for their daughter. Colleen's car sat eerily alone in the parking lot. At 11.20 p.m., Colleen's parents reported her missing to the police. They pinged her cell phone. Its last known location came back to the school. Then, a police dispatcher who had just finished his shift spotted a lone male walking along the old Route No. 1 highway in nearby Topsfield five miles from Danvers. Dotted by only a few houses set well back from the road, the old narrow highway was dark with no street lights. It was not a safe place for anyone to be walking. He noticed the mail proceed over a narrow bridge and made a call to police. It was common for police to approach pedestrians on the old highway and offer to move them to a safer route. Neil Hovey and a fellow officer, Joseph DiBernardo, responded to the call in separate vehicles. Just 350 yards from the station, Officer Hovey arrived first and spotted a male walking. It was just after midnight. He stopped his vehicle in the middle of the road and activated his blue lights to alert other drivers. He notified the station of his location and exited his vehicle. Philip stopped. The officer noticed Philip's clothing. Although the temperature was hovering in the mid-40s, he was dressed in shorts, a zip-up sweatshirt, and running shoes, with a backpack slung over his shoulders. The officer asked where he was going. With his hands resting in the pockets of his sweatshirt, Philip didn't look at the officer. Instead, he stared straight ahead, as if not even seeing him, as he replied, Nowhere. Court records reported that the officer asked him where he lived. He replied that he didn't have an address and that he'd been walking for days. The officer then asked if he had any identification and patted down his front left shorts pocket and felt a hard piece of plastic. Meanwhile, Officer DeBarnardo arrived to see Officer Hobie speaking with Philip and watched him pat down his pockets. Officer DeBarnardo asked Philip to remove his hands from his pockets, 
then asked what was in the backpack, to which he stated, survival gear. As cars was passing 45 miles an hour, Officer DeBernardo removed his backpack, as Philip continued to stare off into the distance. He instructed Philip to empty his pockets and place the items on the trunk of the police car. He obliged and removed Colleen's driver's license, insurance, and credit card. At this point, the officers weren't aware Colleen had been reported missing. Officer DeBernardo asked for his name, and he responded, Philip Chisholm. Immediately, both officers recognized him as the missing teen. The officer asked Philip if he'd like to ride to the police station, and he agreed. At the station, Philip was provided with a warm blanket. He was not placed in handcuffs and was not under arrest. The Topsfield Police had a policy of itemizing property of anyone brought in before it is removed from them. Philip's backpack was placed on the counter, and Officer Hovey asked if there was anything dangerous in it. Philip replied, Yes. The officer put gloves on and started emptying the backpack. First, he removed a purse. Inside was a bloody box cutter with a blade protruding. Next was a pair of women's underwear. Asked who the blood belonged to, Philip flatly stated, The girl. Officer Hovey left the room to call Danver police. Officer De Bernardo asked where the girl was. Philip replied, She's buried in the woods. The officer then asked if they could still help her. Philip said no. The officer noticed reddish-brown stains on Philip's sweatshirt and seized his clothes along with his running shoes. A sergeant from Danvers Police arrived and Philip was handcuffed. His mother was called and arrived at the station shortly after 1.30 a.m. Scrolling through hours of video, Officer Baldazera saw footage of Colleen in the hallway going into the washroom, followed by a male. Shortly after... The male exited the washroom. Colleen never did. It was 2.30 a.m. when he called a detective. A canine search was done, and thermal imaging used along with a group of officers searching, while Philip and his mother were taken to an interview room. Over the next hour and 44 minutes, Philip sat quietly, refusing to look at anyone and ignoring his mother. Eventually, he asked officers if he had to talk with her in the room. His mother offered to leave. As soon as she did, Philip said, very bad things happened. He was calm and cooperative as he confessed. He drew officers three maps. One led them to Colleen's body another to their phones, and the third pointed to the wounds on her body. Philip was charged with murder, aggravated rape, and armed robbery. 
He was taken to a youth facility where he was held. While there in June 2014, he attacked a female employee. The assault was very similar to his attack on Colleen, except the employee survived. The prosecution was not interested in a plea deal. Philip went to trial in late 2015. He was tried as an adult. His defense did not deny his guilt, but claimed he suffered from mental illness. But the prosecution had hired a psychologist to perform a number of tests on Philip and presented evidence that he was faking it. During the trial, the jurors were loaded into a bus for a tour of the crime. They walked the same hallways as Colleen and into the wooded area behind the school and ended on the bridge on old route number one. Philip was found guilty. At his sentencing, his defense team tried to limit the number of victim impact statements that could be read, but the judge denied the request. Colleen's father, Tom, felt that he had failed to protect his daughter, and the prosecutor told the courtroom that these are the crimes that make one soul ache. The judge sentenced Philip to 25 years for murder and 40 years for rape and robbery. He will be eligible for parole when he is 54. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Lewis Gaskin. He crept into the woods to where he could see the window and waited for his victim to walk into view. Then he pulled the trigger. Lewis got away with murder. Then as Christmas was approaching, Lewis crept into the woods again. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>